the Portugal podcast. It's a 2022 FIFA World Cup part one. My name is Matthew Marshall and he's Tom Condit. Tom, how you going? Hi there, Matt. Yeah, I'm great. Uh, really starting to get excited now, Matt, I must say. I know there's lots of question marks, lots of kind of other issues surrounding this World Cup, but just thinking about the football itself and the tournament itself, uh, you know, it was announced yesterday, wasn't it, the Portugal squad? And I have to say, I'm pretty excited. How are you um, feeling about the whole Qatar issue? How are you going to sort of let it affect what you're seeing? Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> we, we could just do a whole separate podcast on that, couldn't we, Matt? But basically, you know, we all know it's it should never have been held in this country. I couldn't believe yesterday or the day before Blatter came out and even saying, you know, oh, what a bad mistake. It was such a mistake. You know, the actual guy who was, made it happen. He had nothing to uh, do with it. No, exactly. Yeah. Uh, putting all the blame on Platini, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah. you know, that's obviously, uh, you know, it's, everyone admits, I think everyone knows that it should never have been awarded to Qatar. You know, I suppose the only kind of slight silver lining is that... Uh, you know, all these issues with, uh, you know, kind of homophobia, the way the, uh, the, the construction workers have been treated and are treated. Uh, you know, basically they're slaves, aren't they, over there? Uh, I suppose the only thing is having the World Cup there has kind of shined a light uh, on these issues. Maybe having the whole world looking at this country and criticising them uh, will lead to some change in, you know, in the way that country does certain things. Time will tell, Tom. But, yeah, I think anyone who knows anything about FIFA knows about corruption. And uh, corruption had its hands on this World Cup. And what's interesting about it also is, which is when you look at the previous World Cup, isn't it, Tom? With, uh, with what's happened recently with, uh, with Putin and Ukraine. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's unfortunate that a lot of these political things are getting dragged into what should just be purely a football you know, bonanza, a sporting... They were chosen, Matt. They were both of those World Cups for the first time ever. They were announced, I don't know if you remember, on, on the same the same ceremony, the same time. They said, that, you know, they normally used to just announce the, the, the next World Cup. But for some reason, they announced the Russia World Cup and the Qatar World Cup on the very same day. And so <laughs> that day must go down in one of the, you know, uh, oh, it must go down in the annals as kind of the the epitome of, uh, of corruption and <laughs> making wrong decisions. Yeah, I think it's just self-explanatory, FIFA, and uh, <laughs> there's no real need. There's no need to even go into the, the detail. Everyone just knows that's just the way things are. Anyway, Tom, I'm uh, pretty confident on my chances of getting there because they changed the rules as far as the, uh, the COVID test. I've got a little side trip over to Amsterdam a few days before planning to go to Qatar, and I was a bit a bit worried that a couple of days in Amsterdam would increase my risks of catching COVID. But uh, I'll still obviously take all the precautions, and yeah, that's lifted a lot of the anxiety. So, uh, mate, I'll I'll just talk to people. I'll just do stuff off the record, get to know people working in these these places, and just get around and just see what I can see. But of Fantastic, course, I, won't, I yeah, won't be I won't be I won't be saying anything while I'm there. I'll be doing it in podcast form. So I'll release something as I did with the uh, the under seventeen in Israel. 
that was also a pretty challenging situation. Didn't get a whole lot of coverage, but that's a, that's a challenging part of the world. It is what it is. This is the way that football is, as we say. So we're not going to talk about it on every podcast. It's just going to be football from here on and out. But I think we just did to needed to address it here in part one, and just get it out of the way, Tom. And then you can hear everything that I see and hear uh, in podcast form uh, once the tournament's over. Fantastic, Matt. It's really good that you're there. You know, I'm really um, proud to have a. Portugal journalist on the ground there, you know, seeing for yourself uh, what's going on. And yeah, really look forward to hearing all about it. Uh, you know, probably us, I guess, I know everyone who listens to you know, you, you tend not to pull any punches. So it's going to be very interesting listening to your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I don't support a club, so I get all my emotion out on the Salasal. And that's going to be no different here. Okay, Tom, goalkeepers, we've seen Fernando Santos bring in Diogo Costa, and he's justified that in a big way, hasn't he? And if he's not one of the best young goalkeepers in, in the world right now, I'm not sure who is. He just We talked about him over lunch, didn't we, not that long ago, but I've been seeing this with Diogo Costa for ages now, it seems. He's just one of the most consistent keepers. He hardly ever makes a mistake. Of course, he got a lot of publicity recently with penalty save after penalty save in the Champions League, and he also put Chick off as well in that game in Prague. We saw the excellent distribution for the, that, that long goal kick that uh, released Galeno. So he's got everything. He's confident. This is a huge boost for Portugal, considering Patricio was on the way out basically at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is one position where there's absolutely no arguments. And uh, yeah, like you said, very good timing, really, because Patricio, you know, fair play to him. He's actually Portuguese most capped goalkeeper ever and had a pretty fantastic career himself. But I think now, you know, there's no doubt about it. Diogo Costa, like you said, came in a little bit early and uh, Fernando Santos chose just, a, a, you know, very non-pressure games like the World Cup playoffs to give him his debuts. And uh, to be fair, didn't have an awful lot to do in those two games, did he, against Turkey and North Macedonia, of course. Just seems so calm and composed for, for his age. Really remarkable. And like you were saying, Matt, when we were chatting about it uh, the other day, like you, you were mentioning... Uh, it's virtually error-free. You know, I can hardly remember uh, any mistake he's made. And he's been, uh, you know, Porto's number one goalkeeper now for, what, a year and a half. He's just, you know, rock solid. Yeah, and the uh, third goalkeeper is Jose Sa, who actually probably second choice, I would say. Okay, Tom, let's move into central defence. And we got some questions from some people on Twitter. Carlos J.D. Chaves. Why Antonio Silva? He's young and has an excellent future, but what were the other options and was this the best choice? I guess the original reason I wasn't too psyched about it, Tom, is because I don't like to see a whole lot of pressure placed on players that are so young and particularly players that haven't played a whole lot of games. But when you look at the other three guys that Santos has called up and not used, of course, Thiago Jalo, David Carmo and Gonzalo Inacio. I mean, Carmo hasn't had a great start in, after that move to Porto. Gonzalo Inacio, you wouldn't really say that he's improving. He's kind of staying at the same level. And Thiago Jalot, it looks like he's um, playing a lot more central defence than he was last season when he was moving around a lot. But as we've already seen with Santos calling those guys up and not playing them, it wouldn't be a huge surprise to see that happen here. If you're going on form, I mean, I was really lucky to see Antonio Silva make his debut at that game at Bolvista. And uh, I also saw him in the Champions League. And I asked... Roger Schmidt about him after that game against Juventus, if you remember, Tom, and he just said, yeah, he's ready. He knew he was ready when he saw him playing, and he's obviously been the beneficiary of all those injuries to their Brazilian centre-backs at Benfica, but 
he's been part of that team that's just been devastating, Tom, and he's come up with some goals as well to get his name out there even more. I like this from Santos. Why not? In relation to those other three guys, this is probably that Santos wants to meet the guy, wants to see what he's like, see what his personality's like, see what he's like in the group, and just give him that, that huge opportunity to go to Qatar, even though he's unlikely to get on the pitch. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you talk about pressure there. Well, he's been thrown in at the deep end at Benfica, and it's not as if he had, uh, you know, easy matches, especially recently. You know, PSG twice, Juventus twice, Porto up in the Dragal, of course, another match you were at. And they were, uh, you know, and he, uh, he came out trumps in all of them. Uh, I think the thing which impressed me most with him, uh, you know what it is, Matt? Uh, he has made a couple of mistakes, maybe. He gave away the penalty, didn't he, in, uh, at PSG. Also the game against, yeah, Caldas de Reina, actually, in, in the Tassa de Liga. He made a, a bit of sloppy play, gave away possession, and that resulted in a goal. But what has impressed me was those mistakes just don't phase him at all. He's been superb before those mistakes, after those mistakes. hasn't. I think that's always a sign of a good player, especially a defender and a goalkeeper, you know. They don't let a bad mistake or a bad moment affect them. So, yeah, I wouldn't be too worried about pressure on Antonio Silva. And, yeah, agree 100%. I think, uh, I think he's, he's the right choice. Yeah, he's a guy that went under the radar because he didn't feature for the under-21s or the under-20s. He's captain of the under-19 side for a while there in 2021 and early 2022. That was a team that was a little bit off my radar because I was busy with the, the other youth teams. But he's, yeah, he's just come out of nowhere, and um, it's great to see. It's great to see. And maybe he'll be the next the next guy. We were all talking about those other three guys, but maybe it's Antonio Silva. The next guy, Tom, Pep. And Pep hasn't played since that game against Bayer Leverkusen, which was on the 4th of October. So five weeks Pep hasn't played. He's had a knee injury. We all know what he is capable of. He's earned 128 caps, Tom. He's been ever-present in Portugal's central defence for well over a decade. What do you make of this call-up considering his lack of game time? I know it's a bit redundant, but you kind of say Pep is Pep. You know, he is just, I'd say, after Cristiano Ronaldo, the most important player in Portugal over the last two decades. Just an absolute monster of a centre-back. I think possibly Portugal's best defender of all time. He has had these injury problems over the last couple of years. You know, it's natural, isn't it? He's, he's really getting old in the tooth uh, in terms of footballer's age. I think you've also got to factor in the fact that such a respected player, even from the kind of, you know, psychological mentality point of view, he's someone who's obviously great to have around the, the squad. Him and Ronaldo kind of soulmates as well. So uh, I'm sure they'd be good for each other as well. If Pep was anywhere near fit, I think there was absolutely no doubt that, that he'd be going. I think what we need to talk about is a lot of things that could be going on behind the scenes that never get reported on. It wouldn't surprise me if Pep's had a word to Conceição and just say, look, mate, I'm done for the year, basically. You know, I want to go to the World Cup. I'll be with you for the second half of the season. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if Conceição just respects that and just knows that he's got three other centre-backs, which we've all seen. I wouldn't be surprised if that went down, and he's not that bad. And um, he's obviously had a good chat with Fernando Santos, and I'm sure they've been in communication for a long time. So, yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see uh, how fit he is and, and if he can handle the whole tournament if he stays injury-free. It's going to be interesting to see if he plays, of course, on uh, on the weekend. They've got a tough game, of course. Porto Derby away at Bovista. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think uh, possibly from Portugal's point of view, it would be it wouldn't 
be a bad thing if Pep actually sat that one out. Yeah, I guess I forgot about the uh, the clubs have still got another game to go. I was getting a bit ahead of myself. But we've also should mention that they've got this friendly, haven't we, Tom? Are you going to go to that? That's a, against yeah, Nigeria yeah, at the yeah, Avalon yeah. on November 17. Yeah, so I think that's going to be interesting, actually, because that will give us a, a slight clue, I think, to, well, perhaps quite a big clue to actually what, uh, you know, Fernando Santos' thinking is. Uh, that's just, it's exactly one week before Portugal's first game against Ghana. So presumably he'll pick a side which is pretty near to the side which he, uh, you know, will, will, is planning to send out in, in Portugal's, you know, World Cup opener. And we shouldn't forget Tom Pep, he's 39, he'll be 40 in February. So extremely likely that this is his last international tournament. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to see what he can do for this team in his international swan song. So Ruben Dias, Tom, he's a guy that's missed a bit of time for the Salasal. He's got 39 caps, 25 years old, of course, big part of the very successful Manchester City side. Didn't play in the first four Nations League games, didn't play in the World Cup qualification playoffs, but he played those last two games against uh, Czech Republic in Prague and that 1-0 defeat against Spain. Tom, no doubt that he'll be the first choice starter in central defence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, some people have said perhaps he hasn't quite played his absolute best in a, in a Portugal shirt compared to, uh, you know, what he does for City week in, week out. But, uh, yeah, I think that's nitpicking. You know, he's, he's basically one of the world's best central defenders. Yeah, he'll definitely be number one choice. Yeah, and so if we assume that Pep's fit and he'll be partnering Ruben Dias, then we know that third choice is going to be Danilo. He's played a lot of games recently, Tom. He's basically started the last 10 games for Portugal, and most of them in central defence. He's got to uh, play with Pep and with... Ruben Dias. This is what we've been seeing coming for quite a long way now, and I guess it's uh, it's pretty set in stone. There's been a lot of talk about Danilo, uh, you know, being the third choice centre back. Uh, a lot of criticism being thrown Fernando Santos's way, uh, saying, you know, why don't you put in a regular centre back in that place? But to be fair, I think you mentioned there he's played ten games. Again, I think he's played very well for Portugal in practically all those games. You know, in the Nation League's games. Especially, I thought he was, you know, he was really one of Portugal's best players. And, and also for PSG. You know, the game here, I remember um, against Benfica, watching it here, I was really impressed with, with uh, Danilo in that game. I think he, had, he was a bit unlucky, he actually scored an own goal. But apart from that, he, you know, he was one of the best players. OK, Tom, let's move to right back. And of course, Joao Cancelo is first choice. Again, he missed a bit of time. Another one who hasn't been super consistent for the Selassal. We've seen him explode with some fantastic pieces of skill and then kind of not get very involved. And of course, if you want to break down that Spain game, he was pretty much at fault for that goal that came across back to Marata. But he is excellent. And if he can find his best form, he's going to be a huge weapon. And Diogo Delo, a guy who's really gaining a whole lot of confidence. Of course, he scored those couple of goals in Prague. He's been doing well for Manchester United. And it's great to see him improving, Tom. Yeah, and Santos likes him. Uh, you know, we all remember Euro 2020, uh, which was played in 2021, of course. Um, Cancelo was ruled out because of COVID and Dallo came in. He was a little bit of a surprise call-up, I think. Uh, at that time, he wasn't getting much game time at Man United. Uh, but he played and he played well, you know, at Euro 2020. So I think he's got the trust of Fernando Santos. Like you said, he's having a superb season at club level. Uh, Cancelo, it's interesting, you were just talking a while ago, Matt, about players who start well their Portugal careers and then perhaps don't kind of maintain that level. Cancelo, did you know, 
His first three games for the Portugal senior side, he scored in each each one of them. Really explosive start. But uh, but, but yeah, we you know we all know what he, what he can do. Uh, I think that was a really big miss for Portugal at at the last Euros. Cancelo not being there. I just remember a couple of games uh, here in the summer recently in the Nations League. Uh, against the Czech Republic and against Switzerland, the home games here at Alvalade, which I watched, he was he linked up absolutely beautifully with uh, with Bernardo Silva, of course, his club teammate. And so that's one thing which I think you know, if Portugal are to prosper in this tournament, we really need those kind of club chemistry situations we have in the Celestial to to really come to the fore. And I think that's one which can really be of great benefit to Portugal. You know, uh, Cancelo and uh, Bernardo Silva linking up on that right-hand side. That can be a lethal weapon. Yeah, Cancelo, as you say, when he's on form, he's just devastating. And a big part of Santos's game, I guess we'll get into some tactical stuff later, but a big part of the, the Santos tactics is getting those fullbacks way up high into goal-scoring situations. And uh, you even saw Rui with that assist in Prague. So all the fullbacks really a big part of Portugal's game. Tom, we've got another question from Steve. He says, can either Delo or Cancelo move to the left back so we can have both of them on the pitch at the same time, both in great yeah. form and both provide solid attack from the wing back position? Well, no. <laughs> and the reason why is Nuno Mendes, Tom, and he is only 20. He turned 20 in June. He, of course, got his big money move to PSG, a guy you saw a whole lot at the Alvalade playing for Sporting. He's got 16 caps already. I saw him in that Spain game, Tom, and he was just so impressive. Defensively, offensively, positioning, speed. He can head the ball. He completely shut down Ferran Torres. And after I watched Mario Rui, his defensive efforts in Prague, it was just just like night and day. You got to see him recently, didn't you, um, when PSG came to play yeah. Benfica? If we talked about Diogo Costa being one of the best young goalkeepers in world football, then Nuno Mendes can't be far off best young left back in the world absolutely couldn't agree more uh this question uh, yeah uh, to be fair to steve i think he said it he sent it in isn't it we get this quite often and i think without wanting to sound uh, you know rude or anything i think maybe this is a little bit of a uh, premier league centric <laughs> viewpoint because obviously uh dallo's doing very well at manchester united and of course cancelo's been doing well for years at, at man city and so perhaps people who don't watch PSG very often uh, have you know come up with this idea. In my opinion, Nuno Mendes is not only Portugal's best left back by country mile, one of the best left backs in the world, and it, basically he's one of Portugal's most potent weapons. An absolutely awesome player Portugal have uh, got there for not just this World Cup, but for the next decade or so. Hopefully, you know he doesn't have any injury problems, and there's absolutely no way he should be playing anyone other than Nuno Mendes at left back. Yeah, Rafael Guerrero has um, been a good player over the years. We've talked about his issues defensively many times. He's got 56 caps, Guerrero, but no doubt now Mendes is first choice left back. So Mendes on the left, Joao Cancelo on the right, Ruben Dias in the middle with some of these young guys coming through. Just have to see what happens with the evolution of the central defence. Okay, Tom, central midfield, 
we're going to try and get through this quickly because there's just so many of them. Ruben Ebsch is a guy that's basically become a first-choice starter under Fernando Santos. You know I love his passing. Every time he gets on the ball, he could just start an attack. He's, he's brilliant. He gets around pretty well. Joao Paulinha, a guy who you'd have to say he's lost his place in that central midfield when Santos goes with that 4-2-3-1 because William Carvalho played a lot of those Nations League games. Again, Nigeria might give us a little bit of a clue there, but that's what's been happening. And then we've also got Mateusz Nunes. Obviously, he got that move to Wolves. I haven't seen Wolves play, so I can't really talk about how he's going. But I'm really impressed with what I saw with Vitinha, Tom. He's really just coming on so nicely. Only 22. Started that game in Geneva, where uh, didn't really get to show what he's capable of. But he's getting closer and closer. Uh, Joao Mario, a guy who's just been on fire this season for Benfica. He was an obvious choice, I thought. And Otavio. A guy who had a bit of an injury problem there. He got copped that knock late on in Madrid and uh, missed a few games, but he's come back just at the right time. And uh, we've seen him play a fair bit under Fernando Santos. He had a couple of really good performances when he came into the team. So that's a whole lot of weapons in central midfield, Tom. And that's, uh, I think we'll, we'll get onto the Bernardo and Bruno Fernandes separately, but is, are we just overloaded in midfield here? What does this tell you about Santos? It kind of points to the 4-4-2, doesn't it? A little bit, kind of shades of... Euro 2016, because you're right, you know, that's one of the first things which kind of stood out, jumped out to me uh, when when the squad was announced yesterday, was just the, the amount of central midfielders and, uh, of course, related to that, the, the kind of lack of wide midfielders or wingers uh, in the squad. So, yeah, so much choice, so much choice. I agree with you, Ruben Neves, you know, everyone kind of loves... Uh, criticising uh, Fernando Santos when things don't go well, but they kind of forget that occasionally, you know, it has obviously not as often as we would have liked it. It has gone uh, pretty well, and these these games, these, these Nations League games, I thought the games, the home games, uh, the game against Switzerland and that away game where you were at, at in uh, in Prague, you know, Portugal played really well in both those games. Uh, really kind of cohesive performance attacking kind of control performance that you know we, we all want to see them play or have more often and uh, like you said Matt what was the kind of common link common theme to that I think in in my opinion Ruben Neves uh, really made a big difference you know he's there's there he perhaps isn't a player which individually kind of stands out that much you know he hasn't got kind of the physicality or the the dynamism or the the kind of toughness of a of a Polinia perhaps hasn't got quite the guile of someone like Vitinha uh, or the, the energy maybe of someone like Otavio, but he's kind of just got everything a little bit. And of course, his passing is just pretty much peerless. So, so yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see who he chooses. But yeah, I'd be given what's happened these last few games, these last few months, I'd be quite surprised if Neves uh, isn't in the starting eleven. Yeah, it's just so many options and so much contention. You know, depending on who you prefer or what you think might be better against different opposition. So much versatility. You know, Otavio can play on the right, can play in the middle. Joao Mario can play all over the place. I'm sure Vitinha, you could ask him to do a similar type job. And then you've got those three more defensive midfielders with uh, Ruben Neves, Palinha and Cavalier. So, so much versatility, so many weapons. And who knows? Who knows? We'll talk about our, what we think Santosh will do and what we will do a bit later. Okay, Bernardo Silva. Tremendous talent, Tom. A lot of people talking about him not finding a lot of consistency for the Salasal. What I noticed, particularly 
in the game in Prague is that he is just so selfless, Tom. He just sacrifices his, himself, particularly for the right back, to get upfield. And we saw Delo in that game score two goals. And when you're playing your fullbacks as high as Santos does, you need midfielders who are very intelligent, who can see space and cover it when you lose possession. And he's excellent at that. He might not get the goals and assists that people are expecting, but he's a very, very important part of this team. And uh, he's a definite starter. Pep Guardiola says, uh, it's interesting, I've heard him say in more than one occasion about uh, Bernardo Silva, who he absolutely adores, of course, uh, says something like, uh, yeah, as well as being a brilliant footballer, he's a player who absolutely understands the game, you know, back to front. And uh, yeah, so that's just, you know, kind of backs up exactly what you just said there, uh, Matt. He's some, he kind of does, he knows what has to be done for the best of the team. Quite often we see also in the, in the stats in Premier League games, when they have the, the running stats at the end, it's quite often he's the player who's run the most out of the 22 players on the pitch. So tenacious, he really does give every ounce of energy he's got. And like you say, with his intelligence, positions himself well. So yeah, he's an absolute lock in the team, without doubt. He could be a, a real star this World Cup. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see what he does. I think a lot of people also get a bit fixated on formations and positions, but he and uh, the next guy we're going to talk about, Bruno Fernandes, they just move all over the place. Fernandes is a guy you saw a lot of when he came back to Portugal, started for Sporting, of course, went to Manchester United, was sensational there under Solskjaer. Got off the boil a little bit for the Red Devils, but still a key player in, uh, in Santos' side. We saw him score those two goals in the 2-0 uh, win against North Macedonia that sent Portugal to the World Cup. And he just he's just such an important player, isn't he, with his organisational skills. What do you make of uh, Bruno Fernandes for the Selecao, Tom? Well, I think he's really kind of come on leaps and bounds for the Selecao. You know, his club career, like you said, speaks for itself. He's been really sensational for the best part of four or five years now. Had that little spell when Manchester United themselves as a club were going through a bit of a tough spell, but he seems to have got back up to speed. He's playing well again this season. <clears throat> and, uh, and yeah, I think for Portugal, he's really played his best football perhaps the last year or so. Uh, that game against North Macedonia, of course, scored the two goals. Fantastic in that game. And uh, yeah, like you said, it was really noticeable, wasn't it? The way he was kind of really just organising the team almost like, uh, you know, Fernando Santos's lieutenant there on the pitch, pointing everywhere, telling everyone where to go. He's got absolute confidence in his own abilities and in, you know, he's not afraid to tell his teammates what he thinks they should be doing as well. So definitely a seller sound player. I'd say his first spell as a Portugal player, he really failed to light it up. I have to, have to admit that, you know, he didn't really reproduce his club form uh, when he was wearing a Portugal shirt. But yeah, you know, lately he's, he's been much better and he's put in one or two, you know, sensational performances. That one, of course, sticks out. But also the one, again, we keep going back to this match, don't we? The one in Prague, which you saw, uh, he was also, he was fantastic in that game, wasn't he? Really bombing through the centre, uh, scored a goal, didn't he? I think, if I remember rightly. Yeah, goal and an assist in that game. Yeah, goal and assist, that's right, yeah. And uh, yeah, he was, he was fantastic in that game. I thought that, that game was the best game I think I've seen the way Bernardo Silva and Bruno Fernandes were really just uh, getting the best out of each other, you know, switching positions, like I mentioned earlier. They were really confusing, the Czechs, and, uh, you know, two fantastic, intelligent players, if they're 
I, I kind of wondered sometimes if they could both play together. They seemed to play better when only one of them was on the field. But, you know, that kind of proved that they can play together. Uh, you know, they can combine well. And, yeah, if, if both of them are on form, that would just be a... You can't really overstate what a massive boost that would be for Portugal. Yeah, it's interesting. We spoke about some other players that had a really rapid start to their Salasau careers, but he was a bit the opposite. You know, he started pretty slow, didn't get a whole lot of game time, took him a little bit of time to establish himself. But yeah, he's one of the first names on the team sheet. For Santosh, you can understand why uh, some people maybe get annoyed with him. Some of his antics, the way he talks to referees, it's a little bit disappointing, I guess. He tries so many high-risk passes in, in, in the final third that frequently gives the ball away. That um, There's a lot, lot of things he does that, I guess, explain some of the negative comments that he receives, but there's no doubting that the class of Bruno Fernandes is there. And I think also, if you just want to be really simplistic and break it down into goals and assists, of course, this season hasn't looked great. But when you really watch him closely, if there was a statistic for assist of the assist, then he's, he's thereabouts almost all the time. He's really starts a lot of the team moves that result in goals, but he never gets credited for any of it. So yeah. he's one of those guys that you really notice a lot of the work he does when you're watching him live off the ball. As I said, I think I mentioned this on one of our other podcasts we did, Tom. A lot of the organization stuff he does off the ball and directing players around doesn't really translate into an effective high press. That's just something we see under Santos quite regularly. Portugal really dropping back onto their halfway line or even beyond it which is something we'll have to keep an eye on in Qatar. Absolutely, yeah. I think that is on-field personality. I actually quite like it. You know, he's one of these players, you, you love him if he's on your team. You probably hate him if he's, if he's not on your team because, uh, yeah, he's really very, very vocal. I just think he's got so much passion, you can, you can tell. Uh, you know, the, 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 way he, uh, the way he plays the game. And uh, I think in some ways quite similar to Cristiano Ronaldo, you even hear a lot of uh, kind of stories about him, you know, he's, he's a bit of an obsessive trainer and uh, like Ronaldo, you know, just absolutely wears his heart on his sleeve, you know, he, he doesn't kind of hold anything back when it comes to showing his emotions on the pitch. So, yeah, I think that's quite good actually to have, uh, you know, one or two players like that because a lot of these Portugal players, you know, they kind of well behaved, maybe a little bit quiet in in some ways their personality you know talking about Joel Mario you know William Carvalho they they really just kind of players who let their football do the talking and not very vocal on the pitch so it's good to have a player like Fernandes in there to just you know give everyone a, a rocket when they need it. Okay Tom we've got to finish off with a question from Williams Tang which is why did Santos not choose Renato Sanchez this has been a pretty hot topic Tom I guess and one of the main talking points from this squad of course the game time hasn't been heavy but he's been playing a fair bit when you consider what he has been previously this season played just over an hour in three games for psg in october leading into early november this is the big one tom i guess you know so important in 2016 a lot of people saying that he can sort of do things that other players can't but with all those players we mentioned i'm not sure that's really true anymore I'm sure he's had a conversation with Fernando Santos and they basically worked it out between them. I'm not sure, I don't think that Santos would just not choose him without talking to him. And maybe he just doesn't feel like he's ready. But when you look at what Santos did with Joao Felix at the last uh, international tournament, Tom, where he was basically injured and he, what he ended up playing like half an hour off the bench in the final game. And that argument doesn't really stack up because we've seen Fernando Santos call up dudes with these sort of injury issues before. So 
What are your thoughts about Sanchez not being caught up? Yeah, well, I must admit, I was surprised at this uh, at this decision. I would have liked to see him there, just for the simple fact that he's proved it many times in the past, not least at Euro 2020 last year, that he, he just performs well, really well, in a Portugal shirt. He does give something which is a little bit lacking traditionally. I say traditionally because we mentioned players like Princess Octavio and perhaps uh, Matthias Nunes as well, who kind of bring that, that kind of driving energy into the midfield. But it's something which, for the last few years, it's really Sanchez has been the only player who's been able to do that for Portugal, and he, and he has done that consistently. It's difficult really to, to you know, to, to give a definitive answer if this is a right call or a wrong call because we don't know all the details of it. I can only imagine really it is a physical itch, issue. He's only played more than an hour, four times this whole season. He hasn't completed one match, uh, the 90 minutes in one match this whole season. So kind of ironic, isn't it, when you think about it, PSG... Uh, you know, all, the, all these Portuguese players at PSG, if you'd asked in the summer which, Portu- which Portuguese midfielder will make the World Cup squad, Vitinha or Renato Sanchez, I think about 90% of, of people would have, would have said Renato. And uh, yeah, here we are, you know, a few months down the line and it's uh, Vitinha's is in the squad. I've just got to trust Santos on this one for whatever reason. And, you know, we've just talked about all these alternatives. It's not as if he's, you know, picking up some some no mark isn't it in his place you know these are all absolutely top quality players in Portugal's midfield so uh, you know hopefully Renato will come back you know get a good season or two under his belt and he'll be back in the future yeah I would have liked to have seen him I would have taken him ahead of Mateus Nunes and I probably would have taken him ahead of Otavio as well I think he would have been a good weapon off the bench but that's the way Santos went as I said probably enough fitness concerns there from the player himself Okay, Tom, let's move into the attack. And we've got quite a few players missing in this part of the field. We've got, of course, Jota, got injured not that long ago. Uh, Pedro Neto, another one. We had uh, Rafa Silva retire. And Gonzalo Gedge, a guy that wasn't called up. Rafael Leal, he's been getting a fair bit of game time for the Selecao lately. Of course, killing it at AC Milan. But the big question is, what does Santos do tactically? And uh, with a lack of real speed options off the bench, it's looking like he might start on that bench. That is a key issue, in my opinion, Matt, this lack of speed. And for that reason, uh, I would say almost as much as a, uh, as a surprise for me uh, that uh, Renato Sanchez wasn't picked was the fact that Gonzalo Guedes wasn't picked. I think if, uh, if it was... Uh, my decision, I would definitely have brought Gonzalo Guedes precisely for that reason. You know, Portugal have got this abundance of creative players, very physical players, uh, intelligent players in midfield and attack. One thing they haven't got is much speed. You know, like you said, apart from Rafael Leal, uh, very unfortunate, of course, that um, Rafa Silva is playing the best football of his career, has decided he doesn't want to play for Portugal. So, uh, you know, that would have addressed that issue nicely. For that reason, you know, I've, I must admit I was very surprised that Gonzalo Guedes wasn't chosen. You know, imagine if something happens to Rafael Leal or, you know, maybe he starts and then he's subbed off. You know, if 
there's lots of game situations where it's really handy to have someone, you know, especially if Portugal are defending a lead, and uh, to play on the break, you know, someone with just raw speed. And, uh, you know, Gonzalo Guedes, he's got that, as well as being a player with, you know, good history for the Seleção. He's, he's done pretty well for the most part when he's played for Portugal. So for me, that's the biggest surprise in this set of forwards, no Gonzalo Guedes. I guess when you look at the other players that can play out wide, it's really Ricardo Horta and João Félix. Ricardo Horta, of course, very influential for Braga the last season or so. And uh, João Félix, a guy I saw not long ago at that game in uh, the Champions League in Porto, he's been well documented. His lack of game time and the fact that he just doesn't look very happy at all. But he's a guy with massive potential. Tom started his international career pretty well, but all those injury issues and uh, this club move haven't really worked out for him. What do you make of him and Ricardo Horta? It's very interesting, isn't it, these two players? João Félix, you know, when he left Benfica for that massive fee, Three years ago, after that amazing season at Benfica, he was pretty much earmarked to be, you know, the next golden boy of Portuguese football, kind of the natural heir to Cristiano Ronaldo. But uh, yeah, like you said, just hasn't worked out for him at all, has it? You know, his injury problems, and then he seems to have really just not fit the way Diego Simeone plays, and it seems to be a bit of a breakdown in their relationship completely now. I mean, Felix has hardly played at all, has he? Last two or three months, so. Uh, so, yeah, that's a shame. But uh, he has actually had a few appearances off the bench last few games, scored a few goals. So he'll have a point to prove. You've got to think about a World Cup, a European Championship. How many times have we seen this? If your team goes deep into the tournament, you're going to play, what, five, six, seven matches, I think, if you go right to the final. You know, it only needs a player, someone like as well, Felix, to kind of catch fire. And uh, it can make a huge difference to their whole career and, of course, to the, to the team. You know, I'm thinking, for instance, going back, uh, looking back at history, Nuno Gomes at uh, Euro 2000, you know, came out of nowhere, scored five goals, was it? Six goals? That really just set his whole career on, on fire. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not completely uh, unfeasible that something like that will happen. To Joao Feli, just turned 20, I'm not sure, was it 24, 23 or 24? 23, so, yesterday, 23. Tom. Happy birthday, yeah, yeah. Joao Felix. 23 <laughs> yesterday. 23, so you know, he's uh, you know he's at a good age now. He's, uh, like I say, he's got a point to prove. And uh, there's perhaps a space opening up for him as well, you know. Now with, uh, of course, Ronaldo will be up, up front. We're not really sure who's going to partner him. It's been Diogo Jota the last couple of years. has been his preferred partner, but he's not there, obviously, because of injury. Uh, as for Horta, very pleased to see him there. What a, just a very consistent top performer he's been. And, and even for Portugal, isn't it? When he's come on, he's, he's not had many chances, but when he has, he, he's done pretty well. So, so yeah, I don't think Horta will see a whole lot of playing time. But, uh, you know, if, if he's needed, I'm pretty sure that he, you know, he'll do a good job. Yeah, for sure. He's a bench player. He's got that goal off the bench against Spain in that opening Nations League game in the 1-1 draw. Yeah. But yeah, Joel Felix is interesting. He made his debut, if you remember, in that Nations League finals and uh, didn't play in the final against Netherlands, but he was playing a lot. He was pretty much a starter at the beginning of his international career, but just went off the boil big time in sort of late 2020 and has hardly done a thing since. I mean, he came off the bench for like one minute in the Nations League and that was it. So interesting to see what happens with him. I mean, we haven't really seen any partnership with Ronaldo. Maybe this is it, Tom. Maybe this is the uh, the partnership we've been waiting for on the bigger stage. Okay, strikers we've got on today, Silva, maybe a little bit contentious. 27 years old, 51 caps, 19 goals, Tom. And he was on fire when he started his international career, scoring a lot of goals. 
but we haven't seen a whole lot of him lately, have we? It's going to be interesting to see what he does when we've got uh, the other guy, Gonzalo Ramos. But just give us your thoughts on Andre Silva first. Yeah, yeah, I was quite surprised. Like I was saying, I think uh, I really was quite disappointed not to see Gonzalo Guedes. And if Gonzalo Guedes was chosen, I think he would have been the fall guy for me, Andre Silva. So I think he was a little bit lucky maybe to squeeze in. But yeah, he's had a strange career, hasn't he? Because he started off, again, really well, both for his club, Porto. I think he scored. 20 or 21, 22 goals in his first season when he was 19, 20 years old. You know, an amazing achievement, really. And came into the Portugal squad straight after Euro 2016 and scored goal after goal after goal. Most of those 19 goals you mentioned, I'm pretty sure that probably about 12, 13, 14 of them were first year, year and a half of his Portugal career. Seems to have great chemistry with Cristiano Ronaldo. This season, got a few Champions League goals, I, I saw, but... Uh, yeah, hasn't really been much of a regular, has he, for Leipzig? Be interesting to see how much playing time he gets. Uh, Ramos, uh, kind of much more exciting player, I would say, given what's happened this season, especially, of course, part of that incredible first part of the season Benfica have had. And, of course, you've seen a whole lot of Ramos at under-21 level where he just couldn't stop scoring. And to be fair to him, uh, you know, he's taken a step up. It's a big step for a lot of people who... To, to senior football and they, they struggle with that and you have to say that you know he's done a pretty good job at Benfica you know he's one thing about Ramos I just think he's absolutely superb uh, his positioning and his kind of instinct for being where to be uh, a few people are critical of him because he tends to miss a lot of chances uh, which is I think that's true but the fact I think more important than that is the fact that he's in the right place and the right time you know you have to be in the right place to miss those chances. And, uh, you know, he's missed perhaps five, six, seven goals. He could have more this season. But how many has he got? Well, he must be, what, 10 goals or something this season already? Uh, I'd be quite excited to see, uh, you know, how much playing time Gonzalo Ramos gets. And even if Fernando Santos might be tempted to, you know, pick him ahead of Silva. I think he probably will. It's, I sort of missed him at under-19 level. But the under-19 somehow keeps escaping me, but for sure I saw a whole lot of Gonzalo Ramos for the under-21s, Tom. And, uh, yeah, he's just been devastating. You know, 13 goals in 13 games, uh, crushed four against in an 11-0 win against Liechtenstein and three goals against Cyprus. I think that was that game down in Faro. So, yeah, it's just great to see him continuing that in, at club level and his first choice of Benfica. He's got all the skills, Tom. He can run in behind the lines and finish left and right foot. He can go out wide. We've seen him really useful with uh, with the Darwin Nunez last season when they were sort of interchanging uh, across the front line. And uh, he's big. He, he scores a lot of goals with his head. And he, he's pretty creative. He can bring other players into play. So he's got all the skills. And I think he would have to be ahead of Andre Silva on form, surely. Let's wait and see. But certainly great to see Gonzalo Ramos on the up and up, Tom, and on the plane to Qatar. All right, there's only one left. Cristiano Ronaldo. All the talk now is about his age and uh, if he can still do it. He's 37. Fortunately, he's been getting a fair bit of game time for Manchester United after that last little piece of drama where he stormed off. Another guy, as we said, with uh, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes. Guys that can just win you a game and uh, just take, take a game over. For all that's been said about Cristiano Ronaldo and all the talk about whether he should play 90 minutes every game, whether he should start on the bench, whether he should 
you know, you know how much of a role he should play for Portugal. I can tell you one thing, Matt, and I think I'm pretty much sure that even most of Ronaldo's critics would agree with this. You know, if Portugal are in a crunch situation, they need a goal, you know, or it's drawing towards the end of the game, a chance falls to a player in the box. Who do you want that chance to fall to? You know, we've spent the last hour or so just going through a whole list of some absolutely fantastic players Portugal are blessed with. But there is one player who I would trust more than anybody else to put that ball in the back of the net, and that is Cristiano Ronaldo. For all this talk, should he start? Shouldn't he start? The fact is he will start. You know, we all know he will start because of his relationship with Fernando Santos. So it's not really much point, you know, going over that again and again. Uh, let's just hope that, you know, these last few weeks where he's got, uh, you know, quite a bit of uh, playing time under his belt. It's an incredible thing, isn't it, Matt? Uh, even one of the best players of all time, I think even he, confidence is an issue with him. I think you can see that the way he's playing. You know, some of those chances where you just normally know he'd just smash it into the back of the net. He's not doing it, and it's not really because of his physical condition, I don't think. I think it's just, you know, that little bit of confidence he's missing. And, you know, who knows? Starts the first game, a couple of goals maybe against Ghana. He could be that guy I was talking about. You know, we only need one of these players to fire, score four or five goals, four, five, six goals in a tournament, and that would be enough to push Portugal really, really deep. And so, yeah, hopefully... Uh, Ronaldo would do what he's done time and time and time again throughout his career, <laughs> which is prove the doubters wrong, prove the doubters that no, he's not finished, not just yet, and he'll uh, you know do it again for Portugal. Yeah, clearly he's going to going to play as many minutes as he wants, and he's already mentioned he wants to play at the next Euros. We're pretty sure it's going to be Pep's last tournament, but I don't think. I don't think it's going to be like that for Cristiano Ronaldo. 191 caps, 117 goals. So he's going to want to add to that for sure. Tom, we've gone through the squad. We've got a question from Mitchell, uh, who wants us to give uh, the listeners Fernando Santos' starting 11 and your respective starting 11. So you want to start, Tom, with what do you think Santos will do? Basically, I think we can, your 11, my 11, Fernando Santos' 11. I don't think there's going to be any difference in the goalkeeper and the back four, which is Diogo Costa, obviously. Joao Cancelo right back, Nuno Mendes left back. Pep, fitness permitting, will start alongside Ruben Diaz in central defence. If Pep isn't fit, I think Danilo will get the nod there. That's the easy part. <laughs> now, what will happen? I think that Santos will probably look back on what's happened, you know, the last few months, what went well. And like I've mentioned a couple of times in this podcast already, the games uh, in the Nations League, where he went for a kind of 4-2-3-1 formation. I think especially the game at Switzerland at home and the game in, against the Czech Republic uh, away were two of Portugal's best performances probably uh, under Santos. You know, really, really played well. So I think he'll go for something similar, which would be William and Neves, two at the base of midfield, and then three across the middle, obviously Bernardo Silva and Bruno Fernandes. 
I just wanted to mention what position they play. You know, there's a lot of talk. Bernardo, such a skillful player, should be number 10. Bruno can't be number 10. Bruno should be number 10 or so. That game where you were at, at Prague, it was really interesting because they were kind of interchanging and swapping. You know, sometimes uh, Bruno Fernandes would uh, appear in the middle. Sometimes it would be uh, Bernardo Silva. You know, and they're both really intelligent players, aren't they? So they've got the ability to do that. So I think he'll go Bernardo Bruno. And I think he will like that game in Prague. I think he'll choose uh, Rafael Leal to start with Ronaldo. There's no real reason to discuss the back four or goalkeeper, as you said. Yeah, I think he'll go with Ruben Neves and William in midfield, Tom. We've seen that in the last few games. I think he trusts those guys now. And again, Bernardo Silva, Bruno Fernandes, those guys are a lock. My left field one is Raul Mario, Tom. I think he's just been the form player in the, in the Portugal squad. He's been such a key player for Benfica, who are the form team. He's played almost every game. He's just been sensational, and he's full of confidence. He's just on fire. And he was such an important player in 2016. He knows the Santos setup. Santos trusts him. And his versatility and his work rate and his smarts and his brains is what you need. So I reckon João Mario is the guy. And, of course, Cristiano Ronaldo up front. So what would you do, Tom? What would you change? Yeah, I wouldn't change that much. I think I would, like I said, I was so impressed the way Portugal played against uh, against Switzerland and the Czech Republic. I think I'd choose this exact same system. Perhaps the only one I would I would swap would be I'm a huge fan of William. I, you know, ex-sporting player, of course, and uh, and another player who gets a lot of stick that I don't really understand because whenever he plays for Portugal, he tends to do he tends to play very well. But uh, I think I would put in there uh, Palinha, just because Palinha now is playing, is in the form of his life, and he's really William is a big guy, but it's not really that uh, physical. He doesn't get that physical like Polinia does. And I think that would just give, you know, a bit more protection to uh, in front of the back four. And I think this one problem, possible problem with Portugal, is it could be a little bit of a lightweight team. You know, when you've got Bernardo, you've got uh, Bruno Fernandes, you've got even Ruben Neves, you know, and and then perhaps Felix, like you said. Uh, you know, all players who haven't really got that much physicality about them. So Polinia could kind of just redress the balance. So, yeah, I think I would choose the, the, the side I just mentioned. Uh, but at the base of midfield, I would have Paulinho and Neves instead of William and Neves. Yeah, Paulinho is a guy I really like, Tom. But the way I've set my team up, there's no, there's no place for him or William. What I would do is have Ruben Neves, obviously, in the, in the holding midfield role. Then on the right side, I'd have Bernardo Silva. On the left side, I'd have Joao Mario. And then I would just have Bruno Fernandes just doing whatever the hell he wants. Uh, behind Felix and Cristiano Ronaldo. So it'd be like a 4-3-1-2. Bernardo Silva wouldn't be getting that high. And of course, he'd be doing his thing, linking up with Cancelo. And just let Bruno Fernandes just go go wild. I mean, just you basically just go across the front line, do whatever you want to do. Both of my teams, Tom, João Mario, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. You're not too keen on the João Mario. You know, I've seen him a few times, quite a lot of times, you know, live this season. And yeah, he, like you say, he's been sensational, even the... You know, the really big games against PSG, for example, against Juventus, uh, you know, against Porto, which uh, this was what this was quite a common criticism of, of uh, João Mario, that he, you know, is a really smooth operator, isn't he? But he, he tended to kind of disappear sometimes, especially in the big games. But, yeah, this season he's been, he's been playing the best football of his career. 
And so, yeah, that's actually, you know, when when I first heard you suggest that idea, Matt, I thought it was a little bit, <laughs> it's a little bit out of the box. But yeah, it kind of uh, kind of makes sense. Uh, it's going to be funny, isn't it, uh, Matt? If we end up with, uh, you can imagine the people who are a little bit averse to, uh, shall we say, to Santos and uh, saying he's stuck in his his ways. Imagine if we end up with like Pep, William. Uh, João Mario, uh, Ronaldo, basically, uh, you know, repeating the, the the recipe from eight years ago. But uh, but yeah, no, good shout. I think that's a that's a good shout. I think João Mario is uh, chosen. You know, if he plays how he has been playing this season, then uh, yeah, that will be good news for Portugal. <laughs> options for Fernando Santos and of course we need to talk about the man 68 year old Tom has been in charge for just over eight years and of course led Portugal to success in 2016 and the Nations League and we've got a question from our mate Nathan Motes who says with respect to opinion about Fernando Santos his tactics and preferred players what is the right tone can't agree he deserves all support no accountability but it's bad for a supporter base to be too negative. We'll go for one of the replies from Factos FC, who says Santos, easily the most disrespected manager on the planet by his own fan base. A couple of disappointing results aside, always qualifies, always competes, won our two only trophies in six attempts. It's, if the expectation is to win every single competition, no manager will ever be good enough. So that's a little bit uh, opposite. Most of the uh, negative things you see, Tom, Special shout out to the people that create uh, names and, and handles with stuff to do about Santos. So we've got like anti-Santos and that's like next level trolling and negativity. But I was on Danny's podcast after that game in Braga, Tom, and I, I broke this down, I guess, a fair bit. And I wrote that article about uh, called Breaking Down the Bandwagon, which was back in July 2021, Tom, where I basically saw this coming, where every time Portugal don't play to people's expectations it's always Santos gets a lot of the criticism so many games are just fine fine margins but if we want to just I guess address Nathan's question of course there's accountability Tom and you remember we did that podcast after the Germany game I mean we've been doing this podcast for ages I remember we did the podcast before the 2016 final where no one gave Portugal a hope in hell of beating France in Paris and I remember signing off that podcast just saying gotta stay positive mate anything can happen the dreams came true we also said after that game against Germany, where they just got smashed, that that was all on Fernando Santos. All of it. The tactics were just abysmal. Everything was down to him. And he could have been sacked just for that one game. It was that bad. But then we found out, didn't we, that his expectations or the, the, the terms of his contract is just to get Portugal to, to tournaments and get out of the group stage. And he's done that. So how do you feel about the accountability that Santos should face for... Portugal's poor results. Yeah, I think here we have to, I know it's a bit of a boring answer, but you have to take a kind of balanced view. I do think it is legitimate to criticise Santos uh, for maybe its tactics, maybe its mentality, maybe its kind of mindset, underlying mindset. A lot of the game seems to be quite repetitive, the kind of mistakes. I mean, they had to 
in their previous Nations League campaign, last game at home against France, they needed a draw, lost. Serbia at home, last game World Cup qualifying, they needed a draw, lost. Spain needed a draw, lost. Okay, they were they were a bit unlucky in you know many of those games, especially the Spain game. It seems to be you can kind of understand people getting frustrated. Perhaps it's not all on Santos himself and his style. It might just be something really simple, Matt. That you mentioned at the start of this, he's been there eight years. You know, how often do we see club managers or international managers stay in one job for that long? You know, not very, not that often. So perhaps it's just you know hearing the same voice again and again. It's quite difficult, maybe, for Santos to you know kind of get them firing. You know, get that fire in the belly. And maybe it's a bit difficult for the players to take on board what is what he's saying. Okay, so that's the the kind of one half of the argument. I can understand why people think that a change could be positive for Portugal. The other half of the argument, uh, like that Twitter uh, response said, and is absolutely right. You know, Fernando Santos has done what no other Portugal manager has ever done, which is win Portugal a trophy, a major trophy. He has qualified every tournament. I think perhaps. One thing which also gives me cause for optimism is that throughout all this time and even the kind of disappointing results we've had over the last two or three years, you really have never heard any uh, criticism from the actual players towards Fernando Santos. You know, and I think that's really important. That's a really important point. They do respect him. I think they respect him just because of the kind of person he is and his personality, but also because of what is achieved. You know, like I said, it's a Euro. He's the, he's the guy who brought Portugal gold. So, yeah, I can see both both sides of the argument, uh, definitely. Like I said, a bit of a boring <laughs> answer. But, uh, but yeah, as in, in terms of, you know, what, how we should, what should be the tone, we should just be 100% behind Portugal, behind the manager, behind the players, behind everything, you know, just hoping against hope that everything falls into place. Portugal go as far and as deep as possible, you know. OK, if that doesn't happen, if things go wrong, OK then that's the time to throw your criticism at uh, why things didn't turn out how they should have done. But yeah, you know, on the eve of the World Cup, come on, you know, this is Portugal. They've got arguably one of the strongest squads uh, in, in their whole history. We're going into a World Cup. Who's to say that things won't click, you know? And <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, Matt, if, uh, if Portugal, if uh, Fernando Santos pulls it off again, They'll be commissioning statues in every single town and village throughout mm. Portugal, <laughs> you know, for all eternity or for the rest of this century. So, uh, you know, let's hope that after the World Cup final, when we're wrapping up Portugal's uh, performance in Qatar, then we'll be having kind of different conversations about Fernando Santos. It's just obviously just gone overboard with, you know, comments and, and people on Twitter. It's just, it's just, of course, there's accountability there. And the Spain game, yeah, he probably made waited a bit too long to make some substitutions. But I think I've just seen Santos so much now that I can kind of understand everything he's trying to do. It might, doesn't always work out, obviously, but when you're trying to get your fullback so high, as they do, very hard to do that with one holding midfielder. You know, when they're both pushing up so high, you need to have some some cover for them. And we saw what happened when Guerrero was pushing so high in previous tournaments with, with no one behind him. And how 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 bad that was for Portugal. 
So I think Santosh has learned from all that. And when you've got these super attacking guys like Nuno Mendes and Joao Cancelo, you've got to get guys back there. So when you've got William and Ruben Neves, and, you know, those guys can cover either side. And then you've got your Bernardo Silva coming over and whoever's on the other side coming in. So basically, it's not that difficult to see what Santosh is trying to do. And when it works for guys like Pep Guardiola or something, then he's a genius. But when Fernando Santos is basically doing a similar thing, he doesn't know what he's doing and he doesn't, he, you know, he should get sacked and it's just never ending. So, yeah, obviously there's situations where he deserves some accountability, but it's just over the top. It's just gone overboard where Rafa Silva announces his retirement and somehow people want to make that about Santos. Like, seriously? you got to look at players as individuals and human beings, just like you and me and your mate. They got stuff with their kids. They got stuff with their parents. Their grandparents might be sick probably just got some stuff going on and people don't respect that it's got to be something about Fernando Santos and even Antonio Silva he gets caught up and instead of just celebrating it for what it is people want to downplay it and say oh that only happened because you know Fernando Santos has never played Jello and Inacio and David Carmo Antonio Silva's the guy on form and that's the, that's the way he's gone but what has it got to do with those other three guys why can't you just celebrate it for for what it is instead of having to bring some something negative to it regarding Fernando Santos. What the hell does it have to do in a negative way about Fernando Santos? So that's just two examples, but you could go on all day about how everything is Fernando Santos's fault, but the players have a responsibility. And we were there, Tom. We saw it against Serbia. We saw Fernando Santos trying desperately to get his players to move forward. It's human nature. Anyone who's played at any level, under 10, under 15, how many games do you watch where teams need need a draw? then it's just human nature to, to, to sit back. I mean, some teams it's just more than others, but this happens in every league. Every weekend you'll see this sort of stuff happen where managers are trying to drive their guys forward and it's just human nature to, to sit back. And unfortunately, we've seen that twice um, in, in quite big games. You know, one was to get to the World Cup automatically. The second one was to get to the, the Nations League final. So I think we've, we've been accountable for Fernando Santos when we've needed to. I hammered him, didn't I, after that Germany game, Tom? I mean, I was... From, yeah. If you think I'm somehow this huge Santos sympathizer, please go back and listen to that podcast we did after Germany beat Portugal 4-2. I'll, I'll repeat what I said on some of Danny's podcast that we've had COVID, lockdowns. I mean, that went on for way longer than people thought it would, and it's still going. Just when you think that's over, you've got Putin wants to go into Ukraine, basically screwing the economy. Every time you go and fill up your car, it's just like, man, you go to the supermarket, what's going on? Energy. So, mate, seriously, why would I want to start bringing down the Salazar by going, well, well, we can't win the World Cup because because Fernando Santos sucks. We'll be lucky to get to the round of 16 because Santos sucks. And just this on and on and on, on and on and on it goes. And that's why I wrote that article in, when was it, July 2021. Because nothing has changed since that time. I said in that article, FPF are not going to sack Santos. He's got his contract to 2024. But every time the sell sale come on, this negativity, this non-stop negativity, Tom. I mean, like I said, the world has had enough of negativity. I just can't bring it into the sell sale. We know what Santos is. We know his limitations. At the end of the day, are you are you a supporter or not? And if you're a supporter, you've got to get behind the team, and that includes the manager. And just hope for the best, like we did in 2016, and just see what happens. See if he can get it right. See if the players perform. See if Ronaldo's your game winner. See if Bernardo's your game winner. See if Bruno Fernandes, Fernandes is your game winner. How many of those other guys did we mention could be a game winner? Does, does Joao Cancelo, Nuno Mendes explode? Like... The possibilities are all endless. That's the whole point of this tournament. I just wish it would be a little bit more on the support and just a little bit 
less Santos bashing and just bringing him into so many topics, Tom. I mean, you must notice it moderating all the comments on Portugal. Like, you can write an article about something, nothing to do with Santos, but somehow we'll, some, a lot of people will somehow find a way to bring him into the argument. Like, he's somehow responsible or, you know what I mean? It, it just never ends. It's yeah. just... It's whether it's yeah. just the modern world and social media and, and what do you think about that? Yeah, you know, people love to, to moan, don't they? <laughs> I think that's what social media media almost is, especially Twitter, you know, and that, that's why I think it's it's not probably a healthy place to spend a lot of time on because, uh, you know, people just kind of vent their anger, I think, sometimes uh, on there uh, and, and on the comments sometimes. It's like I say, I do understand... Uh, some of the criticism and I think it's legitimate some of the criticism but yeah the the fact that it's kind of people almost seem to have tunnel vision and it's almost like they can't talk about anything else apart from the fact that uh, you know Fernando Santos in their opinion is just uh, what's holding Portugal back uh, you know it's, you, you kind of say that once but you know when you start saying it 20 times it gets a little bit tiresome I agree, and especially at a, at a time like this. One thing also I think sometimes people forget is that people look at this Portugal squad and they rightly look at the incredible players. You know, we just spent the last hour or so talking about them and they think, you know, this, 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 this is a side that should like steamroll our opposition. But international football just doesn't work that way. You know, just look at, look at Brazil, look at France, for instance, look at Spain. When Spain won the World Cup, you know, one of the best international sides uh, in history and during that period where they just won absolutely everything. You look how they won the World Cup in South Africa. You know, pretty boring football most of the time. I think they won just about every game 1-0, didn't they? Look at France when they won the World Cup in Russia. The final was obviously good. They had that game against Argentina. But every other game was not the kind of football which you would expect from players who have the, the, the calibre they have, but no one really remembers that because they just remember France won the World Cup. You know, that's the thing with international football. You just It's all about moments, really, catching the right moment. Let's just see how Fernando Santos gets on. I think it's a really good, it's really important to see how Portugal start the tournament if they start well, get some momentum going. I really don't think that Fernando Santos will be a hindrance to, you know, to this side going far. Football is such a simple game, Tom. You know, you defend well, you stop the other team scoring, and you take your chances, you score a couple of goals, and you win the game. It's basically, <laughs> yeah. sometimes you don't have to go much more, more complicated than that. If uh, Mitrovic doesn't head that ball in, Portugal are off to the World Cup, and the whole narrative around that whole World, World Cup qualification campaign changes, okay? That game we lost in Switzerland, I was there, we had massive turmoil with players playing I don't know how many games in four games in 10 days, no rest, massive changes. And even with that, it was just an early Seferovic goal. Portugal bossed pretty much the whole game, couldn't score. And then against Spain, basically dominated the first 70 minutes. Ronaldo misses two great chances. So yeah, we've mentioned the fact that those fullbacks are just so high, which justifies or explains the 4-2-3-1. But we've also seen him play a 4-3-3. And we've seen that 4-4-2, which was reminiscent of what he did in 2016. So basically it'll be a combination of those three formations. And so many of those players are just so fluid. A lot of the times that formation is meaningless because they're just moving around so much anyway. You know, the 4-4-2 is basically 4-2-3-1.
I just wanted to say something uh, I didn't mention on Danny's podcast, which I wanted to say, Tom. Just a message to the Santos haters. It's just, it's just relentless. Just relentless. And I have to just get away from it as much. Every time the that's from the, from the moment the squad is named to the, the, the competition is over, I've just really got to be disciplined and not go onto Twitter or look at comments of that. For all the reasons we just discussed, Tom, but I got a message, seriously, because I was really fortunate to live in Germany and go to a lot of Bundesliga games. And while I was there, Tom, they used to play Bundesliga games on a Monday night. And football supporters, the match day going supporters in Germany didn't like it. It's not a family friendly time. Away games, as you know, so many German football supporters travel long distances to go to away games. A Monday night, it's just terrible. And so they got together and they got organized and they showed solidarity and they put away their club allegiances and they protested. And you saw the yellow wall in Dortmund. There was one game, there was basically no one there. I was at a game in Dusseldorf where the Eintracht Frankfurt supporters just boycotted the entire first half. Their whole section was empty. And then they let off some loud bangs at the beginning of the second half, packed the joint out. You saw toilet rolls being thrown. Uh, I think that was Frankfurt 2. I remember there was tennis balls, hundreds of tennis balls. As soon as the game starts, they just launched the tennis balls out there. So a combination of that sort of activism, of course, harmless, making a huge stand to put the uh, German Football Federation into a situation where they had no option but to stop playing football on Monday night. They had to do it, even though it was obviously very beneficial financially because of the TV money. But the people power stood up, Tom, and they made change happen through solidarity and action. Now, of course, you've got to be a bit careful where you go with this because we know, or you know, more than most what happened at Sporting Club de Portugal training complex and, and how... When people get angry and they want things to change, then it can easily spill uh, into violence and it can get ugly. But if these people hate Fernando Santos that much, Tom, and they're really just dying to see the FPF sack him, then you've got some options. You know, you could buy tickets for the game with all your mates, get all these guys on Twitter together, buy tickets for the game, and then just don't go. So it's like an empty stadium. You could do that. You could go down to the FPF headquarters. Get yourself some super glue like these clowns are doing at these art galleries. Super glue your hand to the FPF front door or something and take your I hate Santos signs with all your mates. Get them all down there. Get to get some tents together. Maybe you could go on a, like a protest, camp, you know, camping outside the FPF headquarters with all your Santos suck signs and I hate Santos sort of stuff going on. You could do that. You could write to the FPF. Maybe they'll care. Become a journalist. Go to the press conference and, and tell Santos he sucks. Ask him why he's the manager. Ask him why he won't resign. Ask him why he doesn't select this guy. Ask him why he doesn't select that guy. You know, after a defeat. You know what I mean? Put your money where your mouth is. Because if you're not going to do any of those things, then it's just boring. And it's just so tedious by now. And it's just so relentlessly repetitive. Uh, you know, doesn't doesn't equate with today's uh, social media world. We just spent so long talking about all this positivity with the players. And of course, yeah, bring Santos into it. But Santos doesn't have to be 90% of your discussion about the seller sale. I mean, there's so much to be positive about. So many young players, so much talent. That's it, mate. I think that's a, a nice way to sign off. We'll talk to you again just before Portugal take on Ghana in the opening match of the World Cup. Followed, of course, by Uruguay and South Korea. Take it easy.